If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, Choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. And I'm Sue Wingrove, the deputy editor. This edition is a First World War Remembrance Day special. So coming up in the podcast... While other chaps were getting discharged, I was still stuck in this blooming camp. That was a World War I veteran and we've got a commentary from oral historian Peter Hart about the experiences of the Tommies coming home from the trenches. The 11th of November was of great emotional importance to people. This was the day on which men started to come home, on which families started to feel that the danger was over. So although there were victory parades after the signing of the peace treaties in the summer of 1919, the anniversary of the armistice remained significant because of the emotional import of that day. Fiona Reid charts the history of Remembrance Days since 1919. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later on. Now, before we get stuck into the First World War material, let us just tell you a little bit about what's on our website at the moment. The other day, I went to the reopening of the revamped Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, and you can hear my interview with the man charged with bringing this very venerable institution, which is over 350 years old, into the modern museum age. That's on my blog on the website. 
There was a lot of coverage in the news lately about the location of the site of the Battle of Bosworth. Julian Humphreys has written a blog about that. There's also been a lot of debate about how history should be taught, and you can read all about that on our forum. Also on the website is our weekly history quiz, which has been taxing a lot of minds out there every Friday. All this is available at www.bbchistorymagazine.com, and that is, of course, free. So, this month, it's the first Remembrance Day that will not feature any First World War veterans in the annual Cenotaph Parade. That's because of the death earlier this year of Harry Patch, the last veteran in Britain. So with that, the direct link to the conflict has been lost. However, the voices of the veterans live on in the oral testimony that they have given to the Imperial War Museum. Peter Hart has been responsible for gathering these recordings, and he talks to me now, and we also have some clips from the veterans about their experiences of coming home from the war. Peter, you've written uh, an excellent piece for us in the magazine this month about the experiences of First World War soldiers returning home after the armistice, and that's based on their oral testimonies. Um, we're going to hear some clips of the veterans speaking in a minute, but, but could you just give us an idea now of, of, of when these clips uh, were, were taken and how the interviews were conducted? Yes, the, the, it all started back in the 1970s when the Imperial War Museum formed the Sound Archive, which I now work for. I wasn't there then, of course. Uh, and they started recording uh, First World War veterans. And, and there were sort of two great waves, that wave. And then uh, uh, the one I was involved in was in the 1980s. When we, and what we used to do is uh, track these chaps down and then go and interview them in their homes. Uh, full-length, detailed interviews going into their life before the war, during, and then after, and uh, so that we had them in context and could could sort of see what the whole experience was like. Because because war isn't all about fighting; it does have a and well, as we're talking about now, a big aftermath. So uh, they were very detailed interviews. Now their length ranges from two hours right up to uh, twenty odd hours. You know, they really some of them were really long, done across lots and lots of sessions. Okay. Right, so let's let's get on to, to the subject in hand. We're talking about um, basically the end of the war and what happened to the soldiers afterwards. So let's let's just let, let's just uh, go back to the 11th of November 1918. Armistice is de- declared and the news filters through to the Tommies on the front line. Um, w- what did they think about it then? Well, the fight. The, the thing to remember is 1918 is the worst year in many ways of the war. Continental warfare. You know, millions of men fighting. And it continued right to the very end. There were men killed just sort of hours, just minutes even from from, from the actual uh, armistice time. And 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 so in a way, it was an incredible relief for people. And and like human nature is for everyone, people reacted in different ways. So some people would uh, would would sort of just sit there and think think about all the men they'd lost, about about the suffering, the rest of it. Others were just ecstatic, you know, and, and other people thought, what am I going to do now? You know, there's this, there's this, all they'd have been, all they'd been that they can remember since they were 18 was a soldier. And now they had a, a civilian life. And in fact, they had a life. I mean, many of them just didn't really, they couldn't think of anything else but war. And, and, and the, one of their mental defenses was that, uh, they weren't going to survive, so they didn't have to worry. And and, and then suddenly they, they were going to survive, you know. Uh, and that that's a strange change of gear for anybody to, to have to go through. 
Um, but they, they they couldn't um, they couldn't restart their lives immediately, could they? Because it wasn't just a simple case of everyone getting up or out of the trenches and marching off to Calais to come home. Um, uh, we, we, indeed, we've got a clip just now of a chap called uh, Harold Borton, who was a, who was a private in the army, who really struggled to get discharged because he was so useful uh, in in his job, and he had to um, sort of uh, subvert the process to get out. Um, so, what was the discharge process? I mean, what happened at the end of the war? How did soldiers get home? Well, it was an incredible problem for, 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 for the authorities to deal with. There were 3.8 million people in the, in the, in the services in, in, at the time of the armistice in November 1918. Now, they can't all go home at once. You're quite right. There, there would have been absolute chaos. Uh, it, it's just impossible for them to control that. So, so they had to find a means of, of, of letting people go in, not in drips and drabs, but in a, in a steady flow, but organized. And they came up, the first way was they came up with uh, immediately was that they'd let out those who were in key jobs. So if you were in a key job, you know, if you were a, a mining engineer or something like that, something that was needed in civilian industry to help get the economy going again, you would go first. Now, there was a very real problem with that because, of course, they would have been the last people to be called up because they were so key. So they were almost, it was uh, last in, uh, first out. Uh, and this caused a lot of unrest. And uh, people, you know, there were actual, uh, you call them strikes, I think, more than anything else. But there were also disturbances, if you like. Uh, troops taking to the street uh, in London, uh, refusing to go to get on the, the trains to go back to the front. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of trouble I- around about Christmas 1918 and into J- uh, January 1919. Eventually, uh, th- there's a new Secretary of State of War. Our, our old friend Winston Churchill came in, and he made it much more based on on, on your personal age, the length of service you'd, you'd had, and, and also uh, uh, the number of times you'd been wounded. And this was a slightly fairer system. But people always seem to fall through the cracks, and Harold Balkan was, was one of them. You know, he, uh, he was caught up in it, and because he was useful, he, uh, he had to stay. And uh, as I say, uh, he, he tricked his way out in the end. Yeah, Let, let's, let's hear now how Harold describes getting out of the army. I was so useful in this blooming camp and orderly room that the captain wouldn't sign my papers. He wouldn't let them go through. And while other chaps were getting discharged, I was still stuck in this blooming camp. So one day, anyway, I filled up my discharge papers and slipped them in amongst several others that were going through. And the captain, who very rarely read anything, he just signed it, he signed my papers. And they went through to Chester. And two or three days afterwards, my discharge came through. He was furious, and so was the sir. They were all furious that I'd got the discharge and I was going to leave them. But they couldn't do anything about it because the papers were signed. OK, so, so when the soldiers did eventually get home, I mean, obviously there was, there was those months of disgruntlement when they were all stuck in camps waiting to be, um, to be demobbed. But, but when they got home, it wasn't necessarily... Uh, to, to to find a job. I mean, there weren't there weren't that many jobs going around. We've got a uh, a veteran called Fred Dixon who describes what happened to him at an interview process where he felt that uh, he was uh, unfairly treated and didn't get any credit for his for his years of soldiering. So, what was the job situation when they came back? Well, when they came out, a lot of them would 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 go back to their old jobs. Uh, 
Uh, and that in turn caused a lot of problems because, of course, other people were doing those jobs. So uh, all the unskilled labor and, and the women were tipped out of their jobs, which causes a further fluctuation and everything going wrong. But there's another problem. I mean, even if you got your own job back, a job that was perfectly all right for you as an eight, a callow 18-year-old lad in 1915 isn't quite as good when you perhaps have been a senior NCO in the British Army or even an officer and, and you come back and suddenly you're expected to take on a, an almost menial role. And, and, and so people were unhappy in their jobs. Uh, that's if they could get them. Now, they had a form of insurance which allowed them sort of uh, uh, insurance against unemployment for 26 weeks in the next calendar year. But the job market was in such a state of flux that people found themselves just unable to get work. And this wasn't helping. There was a short post-war boom of about 12 months, and, and boom's not quite the right word, I think. It, it was just, you know, uh, uh, there's a sort of relaxation and, 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 and production expanded of civilian goods. But that soon died away. And, of course, the 1920s were a dreadful time for unemployment. And hundreds of thousands of ex-soldiers found themselves on the dole if they were eligible for the doll. Uh, and there wasn't much done for the unemployment in those days. And it, it, it was a dreadful situation to be in. And people looked back, as Fred Dixon did, to the service they'd given and, and really thought, this just isn't fair. How can this be? How can I have given risked all for my country? And then I come back and there's nothing waiting for me. Let's, let's hear Fred Dixon's uh, description of that, of that painful interview. I applied for a job in Whitehall at the Ministry of Labour as a temporary clerk. And I went before a man, uh, Mr. Dixon, <laughs> my own name, he was chairman. And a lot of bearded old men round the board. Yeah. Now, this is where I say the old men were in the saddle again, and you just didn't stand a chance. He said, I'm sorry, Mr. Dixon, but you've had no experience. Why didn't I see red? I got up on my hind legs and I said, pardon me, sir, but I'm the only, but I've had more experience than anybody in this room. <laughs> I said, the thing is, it's been the wrong sort. I said, when I joined the army in 1914, I told the recruiting sergeant I couldn't ride a horse. And he said, we'll bloody soon teach you. I said, they did, and they spared no pains over it. Apparently, I can be fitted for war, but I can't be fitted for peace. I should know what to do another time, gentlemen. And of course, so if you did get a job, if you were lucky enough to, to, to get back into, into work, um, as you say, it wasn't necessarily just, uh, just a case of, of, of settling back down into that civilian routine. These soldiers had been badly affected by the horrors they'd seen. Um, we're, we're going to hear an account from Albert Burtwistle explaining how he struggled with authority afterwards. So how did people sort of react to, to having to, to seg back into civilian life? Well, civilian life is very different. I mean, it, when you're in the, the army... Uh, everything's organized for you. You are part of a system. And, and that, that, that discipline, duty, routine, your comrades, it's a sort of support mechanism in a way. When you're out in the civilian world, it's a lot safer, but there's an awful lot of other problems to cope with. Now, a lot of the men were suffering from combat fatigue, stress. I mean, they didn't call it that in those days. Uh, an awful lot of shell shock, uh, you know, nervous diseases. The, the, People had to cope with civilian life who were 
already mentally damaged. And some of them just couldn't manage the, the stresses. Now, there are all sorts of stresses. There are stresses at work, whereby you're suddenly being told to do something by someone who you don't respect because they, for instance, didn't serve in the army, uh, which is what Albert uh, found, that there are, there, are, there are stresses in your personal life where if anything goes wrong with, with, your, with your girlfriend or your wife in, in the home, then you can react much more violently than, than, than you perhaps would have done before you'd been, uh, if you like, brutalized by experiences on the Western Front or in the Army. And, and so... It, there's, there's, an, there's a sort of hidden background to the return uh, of, of, of violence uh, attacks. People, you know, just, just generally things got a lot more violent uh, in, in the sense of all those soldiers been exposed to so much violence that it was inevitable that some would leak out into civilian life. So let's hear Albert's uh, description of, of, of coping with authority. I think they sent me crackers a bit, you know, because, you, you know, you've been that uh, that used to, to what he did, I suppose. That one day, I remember uh, the gaffer come to me, and I don't know, he said something to me, and I don't know what it were, but it just got right on top of me, you know. And I had a, a doings that I used to take my colours off the, off the, scrape my colours off the rollers with, and it was just like a razor, you know. You know, I grabbed all of it, blinking my pillow, his coat, and I'd split you from top to bottom. <laughs> Stupid me, you know. Anyway, he never said, never bothered nothing about it. I think he thought that, you know, he was a correct folk come back from the war, I think, you know. Now, OK, so there's, 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 there's that hidden cost, uh, the mental problems of, of coping with war, but, but for some soldiers, the, the cost of war was much more obvious in terms of physical disfigurement. And we'll hear from Joseph Picard, who lost his nose in a shell attack in March 1918, telling, uh, telling us what it was like to have to deal with that level of disfigurement. So what was that like? Was it commonplace? There must have been a lot of disfigured, disfigured men in post-war Britain, and how were they treated? It, it was extraordinarily commonplace. Um, I mean... To the level that there was a shortage of artificial limbs. I mean, it, there were hundreds of thousands of people with severe disfigurements. Uh, and Joe, Joe Picard is just one of them. I, I remember interviewing him. He lived in Annick in Northumberland. And he was a wonderful old chap. And his nose had been rebuilt uh, from a piece of cartilage from his ribs. And, and in a way, at the age of, what, 90-odd when I saw him, you could barely tell. It just looked a bit funny. But when he was young and before he'd had that operation, he just had a bit of plastic over, over a, a, basically a hole. And people used to stare at him in the street. And a lot of soldiers had to do, In a way, it could go two ways. They could either give way, almost have a mental collapse and hide away from staring eyes, or they could go out and face it. And Joe was the sort of man that, that went out and faced it. Let's hear from Joe now. And I think it was the first time I was ever out of the hospital. And I wanted to go down and have a look at the place. But anyhow, it's all, all the houses are built on a hillside. In the rose, you see. And I was going along the bottom, and there's some kids in uh, sort of playing about in the bottoms of the things. And as I went past, a short time after they got up, and they galloped past me, you see. I passed it about two or three streets, and when I got there, I saw all the kids in the blinking neighbourhood that gathered, looking, groping at me. I could have taken the crutch and hit the whole blinking lot of them. I knew what they were looking at. So I turned around and I went back to the hospital. 
took all confidence. I turned straight on and went back. So I was sitting one day and I thought, well, it's no good. I can stop like this for the rest of my life. I said, you've got to face it sometime. So I went out again. After that, I just walked out. Any time I was going anywhere, I just walked out. People staring. And if it got bad, I used to turn around and look at them. Uh, I never used to... I never used to mention it. I never used to talk about it. And uh, I find gradually, if, you, if you're not the one that uh, talks about what's the matter with you, nobody will be bothered with it. That's the way I was looked at it. And so beyond disfigurement, there were, there were some soldiers who were um, so disabled that it was hard for them to, to actually get work and, and, and live a civilian life. Uh, we'll hear from William Towers, who lost, lost his leg in the war, and he didn't always receive public sympathy. Um, so how was disablement treated by the public? Were, were, they, were they sympathetic towards these soldiers, or did some of them feel that perhaps uh, that they didn't deserve charity? Well, I think uh, the, the, the quote we're going to play is an extreme case. Uh, and uh, in most cases, they got uh, a measure of public sympathy. Uh, if they had lost a limb, they would be sympathetically received. But the, the, this is only on the surface in many cases, so people would be sorry for them. What they do for them is a different matter. And at one point, there was a, a charge for the, for, for the, uh, for, for, um, I believe, for the, uh, the actual uh, replacement limbs and, uh, and that kind of stuff. And it was a hard world. How they reacted was to, in many cases, form their own associations. Uh, so the, the limbless had an association which which Towers was a, a prominent member of, uh, and this went through right to the 20s and 30s, where they campaigned for their uh, for, for rights for, for the limbless, and, and this moved on to Blesma, uh, British Limbless Ex-Servicemen's Association, which is still going on today. And and men like Towers were a big part in 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 fighting for this. Uh, but, but that issue, the 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 the, uh, the quote you're going to play was an appalling incident. But you notice how Towers reacts. He reacts in a positive manner. He just he just thinks sod you, basically. He really, you know, draws strength from it. Let, let's hear the words of William Towers now. I met a chap that used to know before I went in the army, and he just died me up and down. He said, so I suppose you'd be having to live on other people's generosity for the rest of your life. Well, I said, it won't be your bloody generosity I want. Goodbye. And I walked away. I thought, I'd be determined. I'd show that fella if nobody else. But I don't want the generosity. And do you know that spurred me on, did that? So that's that's taken us through some of the experiences that the, the First World War soldiers described to you um, when you went to interview them. So let's talk just just finally about the value of this oral testimony as a historical source. Obviously, I'm speaking to you now uh, on, on the... Uh, on the eve of the of the of the first um, cenotaph march, which won't have any World War One veterans in it, so can we use this oral testimony that, that, that you've gathered, which is now now no longer possible to, to to add to? Well, I think you use it carefully, as with all oral history evidence. I mean, all oral evidence, uh, you you have to be careful. Uh, just because somebody tells you something doesn't mean it, it's true. And in fact, oral historians tend to be a sceptical bunch as, as, as a rule. But there is a fantastic value in it. 
they'll get dates wrong, they'll get the names of things wrong, they'll misremember things. That's all true. But what they do do is bring a nitty-gritty realism to things. You see, people say, why don't you just use letters or diaries? But letters and diaries can be constructs of fantasy far more than oral history interview, where a fairly uh, uh, you know, stiff interviewer is asking questions and, making, and keeping things online. People write letters to their girlfriends, which bear no resemblance to reality, and they can end up at the War Museum being treated as, as, as gospel. People write things in their diaries that are not necessarily true. Now, oral history adds a whole nitty-gritty background of detail uh, how you polish your shoes, what you did, what you thought, perhaps thoughts that at the time you wouldn't write down, but now with the benefits of old age and, and thinking about things, you're willing to, to share with people. You have to be careful. They may have been influenced by events since then. But it is another part of evidence. And I'm not saying it's the most important evidence. I just say it's part of the... You have to look at the, the totality of evidence uh, and, 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 and try and find out what, most, what, what, what is most likely to be true. And in that, you use all history alongside the letters, alongside the diaries, alongside the personal accounts that they wrote in the, the, in the years after the war. And, and I think it, it's great. But to hear their voices, the humor, uh, the determination, sometimes the pathos, and that comes across in, in a, when you can actually hear the man speaking in a way it doesn't on the printed page. Uh, and and I, altogether, I mean, I've loved my job working for the Sound Archive at the Imperial War Museum. I've been there for 27, 28 years. Uh, and we're still interviewing now. We're interviewing uh, soldiers who have, who have just recently served in Afghanistan and in, and in Iraq. The work goes on, and it'll go on long after I've uh, turned up my toes, as they say. Thank you, Peter Hart, and thank you to the Imperial War Museum Sound Archive for permission to reproduce those clips. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. That was Peter Hart. His feature on what happened to the Tommies when they came home from the trenches is in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which also features pieces on the Berlin Wall, Britain's first motorway, the gunpowder plot, the Battle of Quiberon Bay in 1759, and a lot more besides. 
Now, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, the guns of Europe fell silent at the end of the First World War when the armistice was signed. Now, each year on Remembrance Day, Britain takes time to reflect on the war and to remember all those who've fallen in both the world wars and all other conflicts since then. The royal family, leading politicians and religious leaders gather at the Cenotaph in London for a service and all branches of the civilian and military services are represented in ceremonies throughout Britain and the Commonwealth. In this month's issue of the magazine, Dr Fiona Reid of the University of Glamorgan writes about the origins of Remembrance Day. I spoke to her earlier. The first stroke of 11 produced a magical effect. The tramcars glided into stillness. Motors ceased to cough and fume and stopped dead, and the mighty-limbed dray horses hunched back upon their loads and stopped also, seeming to do it of their own volition. Everyone stood still. The hush deepened. It had spread over the whole city and become so pronounced as to impress one with a sense of audibility. It was a silence which was almost pain, and the spirit of memory brooded over it all. Well, that was a quote from the Manchester Guardian in November 1919, and it describes the very first time Britain remembered the dead of the First World War. Today I'm talking to historian Fiona Reid about the origins of that day, the day that we now call Remembrance Day. So why was it thought necessary to introduce such a day after the First World War? Well, the armistice was actually signed on the 11th of November 1918, and this effectively ended the First World War, but the war did not actually end until the signing of the peace treaties in June 1919. That's why so many war memorials are dated 1914 to 1919. The fighting stopped in November 1918, but the war did not. Nevertheless, the 11th of November was of great emotional importance to people. This was the day on which men started to come home, on which families started to feel that the danger was over. So although there were victory parades after the signing of the peace treaties in the summer of 1919, the anniversary of the armistice remained significant because of the emotional import of that day. We need to remember that in Britain there were about 750,000 dead and approximately 500,000 wounded. Now, we need to see this in some perspective. These are horrific figures, but there was no lost generation. Most men did not die. On the contrary, most men came home. And Adrian Gregory has calculated that about 10% of the British population lost someone very close to them, a son or a brother or a husband. And so what Armistice Day initially meant for the vast majority of people was my son or my husband or my brother will now be coming home. And then that later developed into remembering those who had not come home and in trying to assign meaning to those deaths. And, of course, there are a variety of reasons for the implementation of an official Armistice Day. It was an appropriate day to remember the dead and the bereaved because the victory had been marked several months earlier. And it was important to find some way of remembering the dead because the normal civilian practices of memorial were simply not in place. There was no body for most families. The Imperial War Graves Committee would not allow the repatriation of bodies after the war. And this did happen to some extent with French soldiers. Some French soldiers were exhumed from the battleground and taken home to their towns or their villages. But that did not happen in Britain. So families had no body. And this also meant, of course, they had no grave nearby. For many families, all they had was a curt official telegram. 
And during the war, there had been many debates about the right way to remember the losses. Many people had been thinking about this subject for a long while. On an individual level, of course, the family portrait was important. Young men often had their photograph taken in uniform after enlistment. Many family living rooms held these portraits as a private memorial or shrine to the men who were not coming back. And on a national level, it was more difficult to decide what to do. Kipling, during the war, had suggested that a badge of bereavement be issued to close relatives, that is, the wives and the mothers of the, of the dead soldiers. And the idea was that they would wear these badges publicly. This would draw them together as a community of the bereaved and would also alert others to the sacrifice they had made. Now, this plan was not adopted largely because it was a very divisive scheme. It would have differentiated the bereaved from all others. And that tells us much about the thinking behind the actual commemorations in the 1920s. The primary purpose was to unite the entire nation behind some sort of common theme or goal. After the war, there had been revolutions throughout Europe. Worker radicalism was at its peak. Governments were genuinely concerned about the possible impact of veteran radicalism. And so the Armistice Day commemorations can be seen as a socially conservative gesture designed to integrate the national community and to unite the national community around a shared grief so as to minimise other potentially problematic divisions. I see. And so did that first day, how did it differ from that of today or was it very much the same? Um, some of the rituals that we observe today, the silence, the ceremony at the cenotaph, these were present in 1919 on that first Armistice Day. Others, the poppy and the unknown warrior, they developed slightly later. And of course, local war memorials, which are now often the centre of commemoration in Britain, were built throughout the 1920s. They tended not to be in place in 1919. The key difference is, of course, that in 1919, so many people would have had first hand experience of the war and whereas today the first world war is routinely described in the language of regret it is often presented as a futile war a war in which all the deaths are to be deeply regretted in the 1920s there was a much stronger sense of national pride about the war mingled in with the sorrow there was of course a sense of lest we forget no one wanted to repeat the war but the armistice day was also about people assigning meaning to the sacrifice I see. And so did everyone observe um, Armistice Day or what we now call Remembrance Day across the country? Yes, it was very widely observed. It the war was meaningful to people in the 1920s. The focus was very largely on the civilian bereaved. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why Armistice Day ceremonies started to become a focal point for veteran discontent during the early 1920s. Everyone did observe it, but of course, the meaning of this day has, was always and has always been somewhat contested. There was unemployment throughout the 1920s. It was a persistent problem during the interwar years. There was a high level of veteran unemployment and also a high level of veteran discontent with pensions. And there was much anger among ex-servicemen. They were angry because they often felt that attention was being paid to the dead soldier, but not to the soldier who was living, and especially not to the soldier who was trying to live with 
war wounds or who was trying to live on what was often an inadequate pension. So throughout the 1920s, the meaning of Armistice Day was very contested. It was not always a day of great unity. Some people, particularly in the early 1920s, saw this as an opportunity for tremendous party, to have fireworks, to have celebrations. One thing which we often forget is, of course, Britain had won the war. Young people were alive, they had won the war, they were celebrating being alive and being victorious. For others, this was a very solemn, almost a religious event. The unknown warrior was, of course, placed in Westminster Abbey in one of the most religious sites in the country. Some saw it as a day on which to work for peace. Um, in 1919, the 11 o'clock ceremony was followed by meetings about the League of Nations throughout the country because it was taken very seriously that if lest we forget meant anything. It meant we should work for a world in which it is not possible to have this sort of war again. And of course, as the 1920s developed, the 11th of November became a day which it was seen as appropriate to raise money for ex-services charities. So all these different ways of marking Armistice Day, um, they were all recognising that it was important, but they were not all recognising that it's important for the same reason. Now, I started with a quote from the Manchester Guardian um, describing the first um, Armistice Day. Tell me about the two-minute silence. How did that come about? The two-minute silence, um, initially, it was an idea... And from the king, where it was simply suggested that this would be an appropriate way to remember the dead and to remember the bereaved. And it does seem to be something which was very widely observed and which was very significant, although it was something which was obviously imposed. Um, it wasn't something which could be enforced in a very compulsory way. There had to be a level of um, consensus before it could actually work. Um, it was, of course, highly orchestrated. There was no unified clock time throughout Britain, so arranging for everyone to do the same thing at 11 o'clock was not that simple. And Britain was, of course, an industrial country. Stopping trams and trains and factories is not that easy. It has to be organised in advance. Yet despite this planning, despite this orchestration, there was a poignancy about the silence. The Times referred to it as a great, awful silence. And although it was a top-down suggestion, there was no plan for exactly how this silence should be observed. It was assumed that people would simply stop what they were doing and be quiet. But what actually happened was that many people simply chose to go out into the street and to stand in a public place and to be silent and to observe a sort of sense of community in the silence. And I think that there definitely was an act of spontaneity there and an indication that this silence was, was really meaningful and, and important. Fiona, this year will be the first year in which there'll be no First World War veterans to attend Remembrance Day. Uh, the yes. loss survivor Harry Patch died earlier this year. Um, as the First World War passes out of the realm of living memory, what do you think the role now is of Remembrance Day 90 years on? I think there is something peculiar about Remembrance Day. It is something which began in order to remember one specific war. And it has now 
become an event of which we remember all wars and all war dead, and yet there is somehow still a special place, according to the First World War, in this rather wider remembrance. There's a stark contrast with France here. There, the 11th of November remains an important day, but it remains an important day because it is commemorating the dead of the First World War only. I think there is a danger that Remembrance Day can be seen as glorifying war. It's very clearly a militaristic ceremony which can validate the whole process of dying for one's country. On the other hand, this ceremony sometimes seems dangerous in that it over-sentimentalizes our responses to war. One can be a very committed pacifist for two minutes each November and then fail to engage with the very serious topics of war and British involvement in war for the rest of the year. And I think it's very noticeable that in Britain, which is not a country in which pacifism has a great deal of support, one always hears um, highly pacifist sentiments expressed on the 11th of November. I do maintain that it's important to acknowledge Remembrance Day because it makes us publicly acknowledge that war involves death and any intelligent discussion about British troops and British support for other wars must acknowledge this fact. Too often there is shock and surprise when British troops are killed in action. But when one supports war, one needs to recognise that death is in some senses the inevitable outcome of those wars and it may be the case that some conflicts are valid and other conflicts are not that is always a matter of debate but what is not a matter of debate is that the price of taking part in a war is that some soldiers will inevitably die and thanks to dr reed of the university of glamorgan you can read her feature in the november issue of the magazine her book, Broken Men, Shell Shock, Treatment and Recovery in Britain, 1914-1930, to will be published by Hambledon in 2010. Now, you can watch the Cenotaph Parade live on BBC TV on Sunday the 8th of November. On Wednesday the 11th of November, there'll be a passing of a generation service in Westminster Abbey. You'll be able to see that live on BBC One at 10.30am. You can read more about the First World War Tommy's experience and the history of Remembrance Day in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale in the UK right now. Or you can save money and ensure that you never miss an issue by subscribing to the magazine. It's published each month and we've got great subscription deals available, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are on the website, which is at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. That's it for this issue. Thanks as ever for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs>